When I came to the Philippines in Alep, there was really no true market. We did the analysis for our, our presentations and it was about $40 million in annual deal flow. It was a small market for sure. The pandemic was terrible for a lot of people, but what it did result in the Philippines is that it really made a leap from analog to digital. E-wallets went from 30 million to now 84 or 86 million wallet accounts, and that's just Gcash. That's a huge percentage of the Philippine population, which is around 117 million. You see that in a lot of other sectors in the Philippine economy as well. It leapfrogged over those couple of years. And as a result, there's also a lot of business opportunities and startup opportunities that arose from that massive change. On the last two years, we've seen each year more than a billion dollars invested in terms of deal flow. And that's 25x over that 10-year period. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, Sierra founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview change makers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 40,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Stay well and stay brave. Are you expanding or launching a business in the Philippines? Ensuring your employees' good health is key to attracting and retaining top talent. That's where Hive Health comes in, especially for startups and small to medium-sized businesses. They specialize in providing top quality and hassle-free healthcare plans tailored to your workplace. Learn more at www.ourhivehealth.com. Hey, Yelma. Really excited to have you on the show. Uh, you're representing Foxmont and so many good things. Franco has been on the show before uh, and said that you'd be an amazing uh, perspective to share your journey experience. I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Great. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. I hope to meet that hurdle that Franco set for me. I'm Yelmer. I'm indeed one of the founding partners of uh, Foxmont. We started Foxmont in 2018. It's a Philippine-focused VC firm. We started it with the belief that there should be a player in the Philippines that really has the founders first and as entrepreneurs ourselves, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. We thought that we would be potentially a good, you know, a group of people to help founders in the Philippines. I personally have a background in consulting. I worked with McKinsey at the start of my career. Um, I also was at Lehman Brothers Investment Banking for a while, realized banking was really not for me. So moved to China where I did private equity for a couple of years. And then I moved to the Philippines uh, where I set up my own company. And through that process, kind of really understood the challenges and the things that entrepreneurs really need in the Philippines to get their business growing. And that was a little bit the mission or the start of Foxmont. Awesome. So what were you like as a kid? I was very curious. My parents always say that I had both of my hands on my back and I would walk around all over the place and just ask people questions all the time and why, why, why. It's also in my report cards in school still. And so I'm pretty sure that I annoyed a lot of people as well. But yeah, the curiosity was always kind of in my blood. I like the idea and mental image of you walking four hands behind your back. Like a, so like a boss, like a, like this playground is my domain. Well, really more like just curious and trying to understand what's going on around me, I suppose. <laughs> awesome. And so what's interesting is that, you know, you, what were you studying as a kid and as a teenager? 
What did you think you were going to be when you grew up at that point of time? I always liked numbers. When I was young, I had no concept what, of what a profession really was, but I always said that I wanted to be an engineer. I liked working with numbers. Architecture, I also really liked both for the aesthetics, but also because it has a lot of, you know, structural and uh, numerical components to it. Then as I went through middle school in the Netherlands, I realized, you know, I kind of got introduced to the world of finance and, and business and e economic really captured me, really kind of understood, or for me at least, combines a lot of factors and features of how the world works and how people interact with each other. And again, also that numerical component. So really liked that and decided to pursue that. So for my college, my undergrad, I studied finance and business. And then for my master's later, I did law and diplomacy. So really kind of had more of the qualitative components to that and really enjoyed both. So how did you end up picking a first job? Oh, that's a good question. So, I mean, I think it's actually a little, it's a bit standard. So I studied finance and that was at a time when banking, investment banking was really kind of the job to have. And so I applied to a number of investment banks and started with uh, Lehman Brothers initially. So not really too much introspection involved <laughs> with that, but it did teach me a lot, I would say. Yeah. What did you learn? Firstly, to really understand how to look at a business, to go through a business by looking at the financial statements and analyst recordings, the quarterly reporting, testing what people are saying or what management is saying and whether that jives with what we're seeing in the numbers, understanding how business models pivot over time and how new revenue sources are added over time. So really, it was in a way an extension of my undergrad degree to really put into practice what I learned in theory there. Amazing. So I think what's interesting is that Lehman Brothers was in its heyday, very popular, huge investment bank, like you said. And then after that, unfortunately, I think it's no more today. I'm kind of curious, since you have some history of that, what you think about it? Yeah, I think obviously I am sad what happened. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, it caused turmoil in the markets. It had an impact on the reputation of the investment banking sector, I would say. It caused a lot of people, it had a lot of, a big impact on people's livelihoods. I don't think it was definitely not just Lehman Brothers who was the cause of that, but they were the first to go. And so that is essentially what opened the flood, brought the flood waters. One of the things I liked about Lehman Brothers and maybe for the people who aren't so familiar, the listeners who aren't so familiar, to me, Lehman Brothers was a bank that looked a little bit more at how to innovate in their sector. They were kind of seen as a little bit more the street kit versus the Goldman Sachs, more the golden boys. and. I liked that mentality in the investment banking department that I was at. Unfortunately, that also resulted in sometimes pushing the boat out a little bit too much potentially. And that was one reason why I guess what happened. But I did like that mentality to just look from a new perspective at what you could do in, in, in the world of finance. And, and for a lot of products and a lot of M&A opportunities, it has actually brought a lot of value to investors, to companies, to economies. And so that was one of the reasons I decided to join. And I think one of the reasons why it's unfortunate that they had to be the first to go. But obviously, Lehman Brothers was also made of thousands and thousands of individuals. And those individuals are elsewhere now. And their creativity and innovative thinking has been brought there as well, I think. Yeah. And after that, you went on to cross over to consulting. Could you yeah. share more? Yeah. So although I learned a lot in banking, I, I realized it wasn't really for me. I like human interaction. And as an analyst, you really are really kind of an extension of your computer for a hundred hours a week. And so that was not really for me at the time. So decided to go to McKinsey where there is a lot of client interaction and the type of clients that you see there and the individuals that you meet there are really board level and C-suite level. So actually from a very young age onwards, you could get that 
type of look in the kitchen. And that is something that I really appreciated as well. I did projects all over the world in private equity and the energy sector. And so listening to or understanding where those businesses want to go in terms of strategy or wanting the help of an outside party to understand where they should be going in the next 10 to 15 years, I think was very exciting. And I'm still seeing in the Financial Times from time to time articles of clients that I work with who are now continuing to implement some of those ideas that they, together with McKinsey Dunn, had. And I think that's quite exciting. Yeah. Well, my wife is also ex-McKinsey and she's also did both the iBanking consulting route as well. I'm just kind of curious. You did both and obviously you decided to do neither eventually. But I'm just curious, what did you take away from both of these experiences in general? I think it's good to at an early stage, a multitude of experiences, especially at an early age, you can reverse course on certain career decisions you make. And so doing that early on, I think is helpful, but I also didn't know at the time that VC was in a way an amalgamation of those things, right? And that's what I really love about what we're doing right now with Foxmon, but just the ecosystem in general, how it's been blossoming since the mid-90s here in Southeast Asia or in Asia in the mid-2000s, roughly, that you have the consulting part, which is, okay, when I become a part owner as a fund, how do I help grow a company? So that's the consulting part. But then there's also the IB part, which is, can I make a good return on the the investment over time. And then there's an entrepreneurial part, which is something I did before Foxmont. So it's really like a nice cross mix of those three things. And if I had known, or if the ecosystem had been so evolved already at the time that I was doing banking or consulting, I might've just gone there and, and stayed. And that's interesting, right? So there's two parts to it. The first part you said is how's the amalgamation of VC? And also you talk about the Asia side of it. Could you just quickly share about how you eventually moved to Asia? Yeah. So worked for McKinsey for a couple of years and, and McKinsey has this great program program where they support you in your graduate program. I did that in the States. I worked, I studied law and diplomacy. And as I mentioned earlier, to understand the more qualitative part of how the world functions and came at a crossroad at the end of those two years. Like, what do I want to do? McKinsey has an offer for you to go back after your graduate degree. And so that was a very enticing offer, but I wanted to just make sure that was the decision I wanted to go for. And I had worked in China as an intern in private equity right before my master's degree and really enjoyed that. I liked the energy that there was in China at the time. That was the mid to late 2000s or it was 2005, 2000 roughly. And to really enjoyed that and wanted to see if I wanted to do more in the emerging market and got to talking to a, a number of people. And one of those is a half Filipino, half Dutch friend I have. He lived in the Philippines at the time. I got to visit him and just was blown away by the country, the opportunities that there are there. And essentially wanted to do the same thing as I was doing in China, initially as an intern and afterwards as an investment manager. Set up a small mid-sized fund, basically, that looks at mid-cap companies and tries to help them grow. Now that ended up being relatively difficult. So we decided to set up our own businesses. So instead of investing in others, we invested in our own ideas. And one of those ideas was a co-living company. We started that in 2000. Grew that over the next seven years with funding from Singapore and from friends and family and from Philippine institutional investors. Kind of got that experience in the Philippines as well, what it's like to raise funds. And then in 2018, we sold the business to a local conglomerate 
and then tried again with the investment firm idea. And that's how Foxmont came about together with Franco, Jesse as well. So what was it like to found and co-found Foxmont? Well, I'll tell you a little bit the story and maybe explains as well what the name stands for. So we were just a group of friends and we liked the startup scene, Franco and Jesse have also had the startup experience through Grab, for example, and I mentioned mine. And so we got together all the time at the Fairmont and the Raffles, which is a single building in Makati, the hotels. And so we sat there in the writer's bar and started talking a little bit about, okay, what can we do? What can we do to really help the ecosystem here in the Philippines? And have people go through an easier process potentially than what we feel we had as entrepreneurs. So the idea then came about of setting up a small VC shop. We pulled a bit of money together of our own capital largely and started meeting founders in that bar. Or it's it's not a really bar, it's like a coffee lounge. And so that's where the Mont in Fox Mont came from. And, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of foxes and it's a nice kind of analogy to how you sniff good deals and how you try to be the first to find a deal. And so we put the two together and that became Foxmont. Amazing. Well, when you say coffee shop at large, it makes me think of friends, like an episode <laughs> Yeah, a couch. it was really kind of like that. And even yeah. with the founders, and I think, you know, we, we sat on the couch together. We talked about their business initially. Sometimes it wasn't even about an investment, but just really kind of to help them explain what it's like to set up a business in the Philippines. And I think that's a little bit the, the mindset that we still have at Fox One. We, we are really trying to support founders, whether we invest in them or not. We really try to uplift the ecosystem here, take dormant entrepreneurs, as I call them, people who would like to become an entrepreneur, but never really dare to take the steps or the leap. We try to help them in becoming a bit more comfortable about what it's like to become one. And then if we like the business, we will invest in them too. Yeah. What was interesting is that you have this vision, right, for you know, Fox Mond, for the Philippines as well. Uh, and Franco also shared about his broader vision for the Philippines as well. I'm just kind of curious because Foxmon is for the Philippines and Philippines as a market, even back in 2018, you know, Southeast Asia wasn't even hot in 2018. So I'm just kind of curious how you were thinking about that. Yeah, definitely. Like I said, when I came to the Philippines in 2012, there was really no true market. I mean, we did the analysis for our, our presentations and such, and it was about $40 million in annual deal flow. Mm -hmm. That's nothing. And so... It was a diff it was a small market for sure. But I think 2018 was actually a nice start and timing was quite lucky there. You do need luck, obviously, but obviously for a lot of reasons, the pandemic was terrible for a lot of people. But what it did result in the Philippines is that it really made a leap from analog to digital and e-wallets went from, I think, 30 million to now 84 or 86 million wallet accounts and that's just Tcash. So that's like a huge percentage of the Philippine population, which is around 115, 117 million. And you see that in a lot of other sectors in the Philippine economy as well. And commerce became e-commerce, payments became e-payments, and we're now at almost 50%, I believe, e-payments as, as a percentage of total transactions. So it leapfrogged over those couple of years. And as a result, there's also a lot of business opportunities and startup opportunities that arose from that massive change. And in the last two years, we've seen each year more than a billion dollars invested in terms of deal flow. And that's 25x over that 10-year uh, period. And so I think the timing was good. We underestimated what that would do to the economy and the startup ecosystem. We're not so concerned about deal flow anymore because we see over a thousand companies a year at the moment. And we invest in like, 
year to date, we've invested in 13. A couple of those are follow-on investments. So our selection process is quite stringent still. And so you can be selective and you can make good, high quality investments in the Philippines now. And I think it's one of the reasons why we also release things like an annual VC report, why we are part of the Sinigang Valley Association to try to educate not just Philippine stakeholders, but also regional and global stakeholders. Like, hey, something really changed in the Philippines. And you might want to look at this because we think it's a good investment opportunity. So what's interesting is that there's a story of Asia and then the story is obviously Asia within that. And there's a story of the Philippines. That's one way to think about it, right? Like one level down, one level down. But I'm just kind of curious, how would you describe the story of Philippines? Because I know you've gone out to fundraise from LPs, obviously you've been drawn up support for the ecosystem and you've done a lot of the work actually in partnership to write the ecosystem reports that I previously reviewed in a past episode to kind of explain that, and talk about the trends of the ecosystem. I'm just kind of curious, how would you describe that story, both the positives and the things that still need to be worked on. Hard to summarize, but a couple of things like fundamentally from a macroeconomic perspective, the Philippines has actually been doing really well over the last two decades. On average, it's like five to 7% GDP growth. Like year to date, we're at almost six, it's 5.9% uh, GDP growth year over year. And that's the fastest in Southeast Asia. I think one of the fastest in Asia after India. And that's not necessarily something new, but it's underappreciated, I would say. So the macroeconomic side is actually a given, but we do typically need to educate people about it. I think secondly, just the sheer number of people, a number of Filipinos that are in the Philippines that are well-educated, technologically and digitally savvy, speak English, speaks to a lot of investment opportunities for MNCs, but also regional startups who want to expand to another country in, in Southeast Asia. And then another point on population, as I mentioned, is one of the youngest populations in the world on average. And so in the coming couple of decades, we have a demographic that is looking to be consuming a lot more per person because the mean income is going up, but also just as a sheer population because the population is still growing. And that's something that's not the trend globally. I mean, there are a number of countries in Asia, Japan, Korea, China, to a certain extent, where we see significant population reductions. I think that demographic dividend, we can actually really reap the benefits of as a population in the Philippines, but also as a fund. The investment opportunities are abound. And if you look at a seven-year investment horizon, you're already starting to make use of that demographic dividend. Then the third one is the stakeholders. So you have founders and investors. I think in terms of founders, we're seeing the so-called sea turtles, Filipinos who lived abroad and are moving to the Philippines, seeing opportunity there and setting up their own businesses. Increasingly, local Filipinos who were born and raised in the Philippines who are daring to make that jump into entrepreneurship as well. And that's because they see good role models in the startups that have come up over the last decade. They see the curricula in schools are increasingly also including entrepreneurship classes, private capital market courses. And so that really helps them get a little bit more familiar about what it takes to be an entrepreneur, how to set up a startup, how to fundraise, those type of things. And we see the caliber of those types of entrepreneurs actually, like even those one-on-one courses really help a lot. So that's really positive. And the opportunity space has grown as well, given what I just mentioned about the inflection point during the pandemic. So that's from a founder perspective. Then investors, parties like ourselves, we see a lot of, we also see a lot of the conglomerates either start or grow their own corporate VC businesses. And that's super helpful. And there's a third stakeholder that recently started, which is the government. The government 
government now has, in addition to, you know, typical grant programs, they also have the Startup Venture Fund, which is managed by the NDC, and they invest around $200,000 into the startups as well. And they recently made their first investment. So that's enabling growth as well. And we love seeing that type of support from the government too. That is it from the stakeholder perspective. And lastly, I would say the sectors are just growing. Initially, we saw a lot of growth in fintech, e-commerce, those type of things. But B2B is really growing very fast within fintech, but also outside of fintech, B2B businesses. We see a rise in homegrown D2C brands doing well, like Pick Up Coffee or Colorette. Filipinos historically were buying typically foreign products, but right now they're proud to buy their own homegrown brand of coffee or homegrown brand of makeup. And that's really amazing to see. And then a third sector that we see growing is things in sustainability, other innovative, very Filipino solutions to Philippine problems. And I think that's very exciting to see as well, that things we never really thought of, things we haven't seen abroad are now being built in the Philippines just to fix the problem that is existing just in the Philippines. What are some problems that you think are worth fixing in the Philippines? I mean, as in any country, I think there's a lot, but there's a lot of growth generally through the digitization. But Philippine labor used to be very cheap and it is still relatively cheap. So if you look at the B2B side, historically, it was very easy for enterprises to, if there was a problem, you throw more warm bodies at it, you know, more employees to fix the problem. And that has resulted in the productivity of Philippine workforce actually being relatively steady. It hasn't increased so much over the years. And so what we're seeing now is that, you know, digital adoption, B2B SaaS platforms are being increasingly integrated into these enterprises. And so the Filipino workforce can actually become more productive. They don't have to do these rote repetitive tasks anymore and can start really doing more complex work that really adds a lot of value to the businesses. So that's, I think, one area that we've seen, one problem that has been addressed a little bit over time. And I think there's a lot of talk about the BPO sector in the Philippines, which has historically and still continues to be a big driver of GDP growth. The rise of AI and generative AI can be a threat, but you can also see it as an opportunity because what we as startup investors have seen is that a lot of talented computer science majors actually leave to do a relatively simple BPO job, whereas in my view, they're underutilized with their skills. And so if you can either make their job at the BPO company more productive and more value-additive by removing some of the repetitive tasks that AI and generative AI can do, or they move to help grow a startup company or set up their own startup, I think that could really be positive also to the Philippine economy. Yeah. You know, earlier you shared that VC is a great combination of both your investment, banking, as well as consulting skill set. Can you share a little bit more about what that means? Yeah. As a consultant, criticism in the past, I mean, I think they've improved it, so I don't want to, I haven't been in consulting for a while, but in the past, the criticism was that you make a report, you present that to the board or C-suite management, and then it ends up in a drawer somewhere gathering dust. What you're doing in VC is that you still blueprint that strategy, you know, that growth strategy together with the founder. Like, this is what we believe is our investment thesis. This is how we think we can grow the business, new products or new geographies. But then you work with the founder to implement it over the next five to seven years as well, because you're a shareholder and therefore 
an economic beneficiary of that growth as well. So you really kind of put your money where your mouth is. And that's one part I really enjoy. I learned that in consulting, but you now apply it in a way where it benefits the business and your fund returns. So that's the consulting part where that comes to play up. For banking, as I mentioned, you just become very comfortable with reading and interpreting numbers or trying to understand what the underlying problem is and how you want to improve things in an organization. So I think that's the benefit of how investment banking comes to play. Another feature I was in M&A at the time is that's a typical exit for our, our portfolio companies. So if you understand a little bit what a buyer in an M&A transaction looks for, then that helps you in your exit strategy as well for the fund. And entrepreneurship, at the end of the day, we're also in a way a startup. We're a five-year-old startup, Foxmont is. We're a fund manager that didn't exist six years ago. And so we're learning through that as well and trying to understand what it is to be an entrepreneur in a VC firm. What are some of those learnings for Foxmon as a learning VC? What are some lessons that you've learned over this time, past six years? I think it's interesting to actually see how much what we set up was a little kind of needed or demanded from entrepreneurs. It's really gratifying to see how just the other week we had our Foxmon Summit, which is an annual event that we have with the founders that we invested in. And they come together, we invite experts in particular fields, it could be a motivational coach, could be a professional athlete, could be finance or HR, just experts in all types of fields and try to give their expertise to our founders. That's one part of the day. The other part of the day is that we really try to have our founders mingle with each other and find synergies within the Foxmont community. And just seeing every year how that grows, that ecosystem, what we call the Foxmont Mafia, that is just super exciting to see. And I think the one learning is that I had never expected that it would take off so much over such a short period of time. And it's a testament to our founders because at the end of the day, we invest in them, we help them, we support them as much as we can. But the founder is the one with the idea and the one who's actually executing together with their team. So to me, one learning is that the entrepreneurial spirit and quality is there in the Philippines. It just needs to be activated by stakeholders like us and, and other VC firms in the region and in the country. Awesome. Could you share about time that you personally have been brave? I think there's layers of braveness, but it was a difficult decision for me to make the leap from a relatively certain career at McKinsey to initially going to China and not knowing what to expect and then moving to the Philippines and not knowing what to expect, right? Those are leaps of faith that you need to make between a certain career path and an uncertain volatile roller coaster. And it has definitely been a roller coaster, but I would never trade it. So taking a leap of faith and not taking the path of least resistance, it just helps you grow so fast as a human. Amazing. Could you share about how you went about making that decision? I talked to a lot of people. I did a lot of personal thinking. I projected myself 10 years on and thought, okay, in 10 years from now, where would I rather be? And what stories would I rather have in my little knapsack of life experiences. And for me, that just resulted in making the decision to go with kind of the unknown. I guess it's almost about 10 years plus since then. It's been uh, 15. Yeah, 15. well, it's been 10 years since the move to, more than 10 years since the move to the Philippines, but it's been 15 since China. How do you think that measured up against your initial projection? Some parts better, some parts worse. I would say just generally, because it was the unknown, I really had such little expectations and it made me a lot more mindful as well, just experiencing, understanding what was going on at the moment, as opposed to always chasing like a corporate career, knowing where I would want to be in the next four years from now, it makes you chase that target as opposed to what I'm doing now, what I've done as an entrepreneur, 
like I said, it's a roller coaster. You kind of don't know what's around the corner. So it's quite exciting. It stays exciting. As you think about that, I'm so curious when you project yourself 10 years from today, have you thought about that or what aspects do you think are going to be there? Yeah, we think about it as Foxmont. I think about it personally. I think about it in my pers like personal relationship with my wife. I think continuing to have that open mindset, that curiosity, walking around with my hands behind my back. I want to keep that curiosity. With Foxmont specifically, we'd just love to keep growing. We think that the fund size that we have now and that we're looking to have in the coming years, it's still just a drop in the bucket for the potential that there is in the Philippines. Now, we don't want to be the only party. We think there's there should continue to be a nice balance of players in the ecosystem, but we want to be a key party that has a reputation for helping founders grow their business and also for regional investors to see us as a bridge to the Philippines, a party that understands the Philippines. And I think so many areas where we as a fund manager could grow in the Philippines. The ecosystem is maturing. So over time, you could slowly go towards more growth. There's other asset classes that you could potentially invest in over time on their other instruments. So yeah, there's a lot of ideas, but at the end of the day, we don't know what's around the corner. And we're at the moment just focused on getting good returns for our current funds. You mentioned that curiosity is really important to you still. Can you share about how you still see or nurture your curiosity today? Whenever I hear a strong statement, I just almost viscerally try to think of the exact opposite and see if I believe that perspective as well. It's easy relatively for an investor who's sometimes you burn your fingers, sometimes you make a really great bet. At the end of the day, it's not like there's a lot of components that, and there's even luck involved in whether an investment is good or ends up being good or not. And I think just keeping that open mindset, like maybe it didn't work last time, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't invest in a similar product or business this time. I think keeping that open-mindedness is very important for a fund manager. On that note, thank you so much for sharing your journey, Yama. I'd love to summarize the three big takeaways I got from this conversation. First of all, thank you so much for sharing about that early childhood image of you walking around with your hands behind your back, being curious around the playground. It's just been amazing to hear that curiosity and that spirit of learning carry over into your major, becoming an investment banker, to becoming a consultant and being doing your big percentage of your career. So really interesting to hear that set of trade-offs, but also set of decisions and how you went about making those decisions. Secondly, thank you so much for sharing about Foxmon and the vision, the coffee and friends scene, but also how the name came about. It was interesting to hear about your vision for the Philippines and some of the problems that are worth tackling right now, but also the solutions that you're seeing starting to emerge and the type of founders that you're starting to see in the local ecosystem. Uh, thanks so much for sharing about your personal story of bravery. I really enjoyed hearing those moments about how making a move to Asia was a big in the dark for you, but something that you worked out and figured out how to do and uh, really keeping that spirit of learning throughout. So thank you so much, Yama. Thank you. It was great being on the podcast. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.